for Arizona Public Media. I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, jazz diva Ann Hampton Calloway on moving from the Big Apple to the Old Pueblo and her love for Linda Ronstadt. Find out about the Tucson Handweavers and Spinners Guild, using ancient techniques to create new works of beauty. Get a preview of Arizona Theatre Company's winter season, including Silent Sky, a play about astronomy pioneer Henrietta Leavitt. And an essay from Adiba Nelson on the true spirit of Halloween. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. During her stellar career, Linda Ronstadt had hit songs that originated in rock, Mexican folk music, pop, country, and big band styles. That's just the kind of range that appeals to Anne Hampton Calloway. A critically acclaimed singer, songwriter, and musician, she had to make some tough decisions about what to include in her upcoming concert, The Linda Ronstadt Songbook. Anne Hampton Calloway joined me in the studio to talk about the inspiration behind the project and her recent decision to relocate to Tucson despite being closely connected to the New York jazz scene. People say I am the life of a party cause I tell a joke or two. Although I might be laughing loud and hearty, deep inside I blue. So take a I think I'm a part of a, a trend happening around the country. A lot of jazz singers are realizing that they spend all their time on the road, and we are on airplanes going all over the country, all over the world. You don't really have to be in New York to have a very exciting, interesting, artistic life. You can live anywhere. My better half is from Tucson, and they say, you know, if you want to have a happy marriage, <laughs> you should try explore, sharing a roof. <laughs> explore, explore the things that make your partner happy. And so I've been here in Tucson for a little over a year, and I love it. I, I fell in love with it when I did Broadway Swings, a jazz event at Centennial Hall in 1991, and I just fell in love. There's a sort of spiritual beauty about the city and a, a funky kind of quality to it. And as it turned out, we were very lucky to get a 1938 Jostler in the foothills with lots of beautiful land. and I feel like I moved to heaven and God is my next door neighbor. It's just been a, a very nice sanctuary to come home to and then get ready for the next show. And it's a great place to write songs. And I now have an apartment I rent out once, you know, every night that I'm in town in New York City as opposed to Westchester where I lived. And so now when I'm in New York, I'm really in New York and I'm really where the action is and I can see all my friends and do all the things I want to do. It's it's now sort of in some weird way the perfect balanced life. So I'm very happy here. I've been she been mistreated 
And did your connection with Tucson have anything to do with your decision to do a Linda Ronstadt tribute, a songbook concert? Actually, no. It was it was sort of an interesting parallel. It was not a, a, a conscious decision. Hey, I'm moving to Tucson. Let's do a Linda Ronstadt songbook. My partner was a big Linda Ronstadt fan and observed that of Linda and myself, we were both women who love to sing whatever we want to do. We don't want to be uh, bound to one genre. And that is criticized by many purists. Like, if you're a jazz singer, you should never sing pop. If you do Ella Fitzgerald, why are you doing Linda Ronstadt? And I, I find that all boring. In fact, Ella Fitzgerald was, was a genre hopper, too, and most of the singers I admire. I've been creating a sort of legacy series uh, over the past uh, several years where I pay tribute to women who inspired me. Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, Barbara Streisand, who I've had the fortune of writing songs for, Peggy Lee. Linda just seemed like a, a wonderful opportunity for me to celebrate her importance in bringing new life to the love of the Grey American Songbook, which has been one of my main passions in my singing career. But as I was exploring Linda's songs, I found I, w I was more interested in singing more of the pop songs. Back in my early college years, I was doing jam sessions on my guitar, playing, you know, Carole King and James Taylor and Lena Rodstad and Joni Mitchell, and and so it's I'm sort of feeling like I'm doing the the genre exploration in reverse to Linda, where I've spent a lot of my life as a songwriter doing other people's beautiful great American songbook classics, and there was another level of its synchronicity that happened. I was partly inspired to celebrate Linda because I was so heartbroken for her with a voice like that, a career like that, not to be able to sing anymore. And when I was in Birdland doing 10 shows of Ella Fitzgerald and extremely sick and coughing too much, I got a vocal ulceration, which uh, made me have to be silent for two months. And when I was done healing, my doctor said to me, I'm really glad you can sing again because I wasn't sure you would. And so <laughs> I just thought there are some some strange karmic little connections here. Some say the hurt is just like a wheel when you bend it you can't mend it but my love for you is like a sea And my heart is on that ship out in mid-ocean. There could easily be a part two and a part three to this show because there's so much breadth to what she's given us. And, you know, there's only one Linda Rodstad, and I'm, I'm just giving a part of my sense, what I relate to and what speaks to my heart. I wrote to her... Um, I said, of all the songs that, is, that you've recorded in your life, which one is at most to the core of who you are? And she wrote back four words, heart like a wheel. So, of course, then I wanted to learn that song. It's an absolutely exquisite song. And it's a very melancholy love song that, that sort of 
makes you wonder more about Linda Ronstadt and why she doesn't talk much in her autobiography or her documentary about her personal life. It's, it leaves a lot to the imagination, and some people want to say everything, and I like that Linda leaves a little mystery for us to guess at. And it's only love, and it's only love that can wreck a human being and turn him inside out. Anne Hampton Calloway sings an evening of music from the Linda Ronstadt Songbook on Saturday, October 26th at 7.30 p.m. at the Fox Tucson Theater. Weaving, knitting, and fiber arts are some of the oldest human crafts, and a group of Tucson residents are dedicated to keeping these traditions alive. Next, Tony Paniagua speaks to a member of the Tucson Handweavers and Spinners Guild. Diane Bull, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I read that the organization Handweavers and Spinners Guild was founded in the 1970s with approximately three dozen people, but it's grown over the years, hasn't it? Right. We're up over 200 uh, members now, and we are a community of fiber artists who deal traditional hand weaving and spinning and other fiber art mediums. And how did you discover it? I inherited a loom and uh, thought, gee, I need to figure out what to do with this and uh, wound up uh, attending a meeting at Tucson Handweavers and Spinners Guild, uh, otherwise known as THS&G, and was assigned a mentor and then took some weaving lessons and then um, just stayed with the uh, guild. And you were telling me that's one of the things you really enjoy about this organization, right? I love the community. They are talented artists who are willing to share their expertise, their time, their resources. They just uh, work with each other. It's just a, a big family. What does it do for you personally? It's very uh, satisfying 
you start with yarn, uh, looks like string, and uh, wind up putting it on a loom and working for you know several hours and come up with a piece of fabric or cloth. And you have a big event coming up this Saturday. We do. This is our fiber arts sale and show. We have these every two years. It's our major fundraising event. It's also our major event to um, show the public who we are, what we do, uh, encourage them to come. Admission is free, and uh, by having some of these uh, demonstrations of the different study groups, a little hands-on activity to see what it's actually like to be a spinner or a hand weaver or surface design, tapestry work, a little bit of felting, what the felting looks like. And we're going to have some uh, children uh, activities. And there's a special theme this year? Yes, this year in honor of our uh, location, which is the the Dunbar Pavilion, which is the historic African-American school, we our theme is um, African-inspired art. And the gallery is going to have several pieces using that inspiration to demonstrate. And it seems like more and more people are becoming interested in making things, uh, whether it's with fiber arts or wood or welding and so on. What do you think it is about accomplishing a task, creating your own, for example, clothes that you'll be wearing? Well, there's such an interest in hand weaving and spinning and knitting. It's, you know, it's a very, very old uh, form of um, art. Um, It wasn't born out of necessity, obviously, uh, from generations ago, but now it's become an interest uh, that's becoming, uh, you know, more uh, pride of what you can make and wear rather than buying something that's inexpensive and you're going to throw away. These are items that last for years and years and years. Okay, Diane Bull, she's a member of the Tucson Handweavers and Spinners Guild. Thank you very much for joining us. The Fiber Arts 2019 show and sale is this Saturday, October 26th, from noon until 6 p.m. at the Dunbar Pavilion at 325 West 2nd Street, north of downtown Tucson. It's free and open to the public, and you can find a link on our website. Each year, the Arizona Theatre Company presents a versatile range of stage productions in Tucson and Phoenix. Its upcoming schedule demonstrates the company's commitment to providing entertainment and artistic reflections of Southern Arizona's multicultural community. Next, I'll talk with Casey Stangle, the director of ATC's current play, Silent Sky, and Sean Daniels, who became ATC's artistic director in May. Daniels begins with some interesting advice about what to do after you've finished reading a play. I had a, a mentor, John Jory, who I worked with, who his recommendation was you should always read plays on a plane, and then you should leave them in the <laughs> little area in front of the seat in yeah, hopes that perhaps somebody else will. So I tried to litter plays across the country. You've been secretly disseminating these stories Who out knows there where those stories have made it to, yeah. yeah. What do you consider some of your primary goals in terms of setting up a season, looking for plays? What's really going to ring your bell and get you excited about bringing something into ATC? 
I think that Arizona Theater Company is one of the finest theaters happening in the country, and I think Arizona artists are as great as anywhere else, but I don't think the rest of the country knows that. So my real goal is to make us a local theater that the country, if not the world, pays attention to, and really figure out how do we create work here that goes elsewhere? How do we feature Arizona artists on a national stage? Every subscriber goes to New York and comes back and says, oh my God, your shows are just as good as New York. And so it's like, let's get to the top of the food chain and not just produce what New York did four years ago, but let's be the theater that when we announce our seasons, everyone looks to us to figure out what they'll be doing next or to be envious of us. So I want to be a real national leader in terms of the work that we create. Casey, would you please introduce yourself for us? Hi, I'm Casey Stangle, and I'm directing Silent Sky at Arizona Theater Company. What did this play say to you? Do you remember your reaction when you closed the cover on this after taking it all in? I actually, before I read it, I saw the premiere of this production at South Coast Repertory in California a few years ago, and I was just struck by the idea of a woman dreaming, having ambition, uh, being thwarted, and yet still retaining her passion. And also that the playwright, Lauren Gunderson, is able to weave a story that has romance and heart and comedy and also science. And I think those are hard things to weave into one story. So I, I'm amazed at the storytelling and also just at the main character, Henrietta Levitt, and her passion and grit and contribution to not just science, but spirituality in a way. I mean, she's the person who made a discovery that made it possible for us to measure the universe. So thanks to Henrietta Levitt, we know that there's vast sky and vast universes out there. And that sort of just opens up the the worldview for, for us. And it's a, a fundamental change in the way we think about our place in the world. And I, that affects me uh, deeply on a, on a spiritual level as well as a science one. Tell us a few facts about Henrietta Levitt's story. What time period are we talking about? We're talking about the early 1900s. She was an astronomer at Harvard uh, Observatory, and she worked with a group of women who were called computers. Uh, people might know that from the book that was published recently called Hidden Figures about computers at NASA. And this is a similar thing that happened at Harvard. Um, astronomy was a, a burgeoning, growing field, and a bunch of women were employed to essentially map the sky. And Photographs were taken from a telescope at Harvard, and then those plates were given to these women, and it was a very laborious process of measuring and mapping and doing the, the longitude and the classifications of all the stars. And these women were all very educated. They were astronomers in their own right, but they were prevented really from doing some of their own work because it was considered unladylike to actually view through a telescope at night. But Henrietta, like many of her colleagues, was very ambitious and saw patterns in the numbers, and she made this great discovery discovery, which uh, is now known as the Levitt Law. So the production that we're talking about is Silent Sky, written by Lauren Gunderson and directed by Casey Stangle. That's going to be at the Arizona Theater Company at the Temple of Music and Art through November 9th. But Sean, give us some highlights of the season. What are you really excited about that people can look forward to? Well, you know, right after that, we have Cabaret, which is one of the great musicals of all time. To be able to put a world-class production together, I think, is going to be really exciting for Tucson. A play about people living through very difficult times, which is somehow stays relevant. Yeah, and uh, a musical about what's the cost of not acting when you feel like things are on the rise and, yeah, I know you're busy, so maybe I don't really need to go fight the rise of fascism and really how bad could it get? 
Cabaret asks a question that I think we can say, like, how relevant is that question still today? And then also we have, at the very end, we have Georgia McBride and Women in Jeopardy, which are just two incredibly fun shows. Uh, Wendy McLeod, who wrote Women in Jeopardy, wanted to write a comedy about and for, quote unquote, women of a certain age. So it's about a group of ladies who are drinking wine and solving crimes in their town. We want to send everyone out into the summer with just a, a ton of laughs. So it's a great one to end on. My guests were Arizona Theater Company Artistic Director Sean Daniels and the Director of Silent Sky, Casey Stangle. ATC's schedule can be found at arizonatheater.org. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. As October 31st approaches, with its annual treats of candy and frights, she has some things to say about what she calls the trick that is Halloween. Adiba Nelson is an independent contributor to this show, and her commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona public media. I'm Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. It's that time of year again, folks. Ghouls and goblins and ghosts, oh my! It's also the time of year for empty wallets, black and brown children out after dark, and confronting your biases. Oh my. Yes, I am here to ruin your Halloween fun. Or at least make you more aware of the realities of Halloween. Today, Halloween has become the Christmas of October. Parents spend insane amounts of time, money, and energy either making the most perfect costume ever or looking for the most perfect costume ever, if they can afford the time, the energy, and the money. But what about the parents who each work two jobs just to afford the necessities of daily living? They don't have the money, time, or energy to bless their children with the glitter-filled high of making an amazing peacock costume. Or conversely, they indulge in the costume making only to have nothing left over to buy candy to pass out. And trust me, no kid wants to be the house that gave out nothing. Halloween, as much as I hate to say it, it's kind of elitist and it has become somewhat class-based. Sometimes the kids who don't or can't dress up get picked on or, dare I say it, bullied. The houses that don't give out candy, they might get egged. You ask a kid what their favorite house is and it's always the house that gives out the full-size candy bars. And I don't blame them. It would be my favorite house too. But being able to afford the king-size Snickers bar is a privilege that is steeped in economics, class, and social status. Next up, race. I know, we're not supposed to talk about it, lest someone feel attacked or called out. But I wouldn't be me if I didn't ask you to at least examine whatever thoughts you have, fleeting as they may be, when a group of black or brown boys makes their way up your driveway for candy on Halloween night. As you walk your children through the neighborhood on their quest to achieve the most epic candy coma, are you finding yourself a little more on guard as you watch a group of boys of color roughhouse and play fight for candy or simply walk house to house? Are you irritated by the loud and excited shrieks and comfortable easy dialects of the black girls comparing costumes under the streetlights? Maybe you don't see any kids of color out trick-or-treating while you're out with your child. Ask yourself why. 
contemplate what societal ills might make an entire demographic of children begrudgingly remove themselves from the thrill of receiving a king-size Snickers bar. I have a girlfriend who will not let her child wear a mask on Halloween, nor makeup. This sweet child, filled with all the black boy joy his little heart can hold, is told every year that he can wear costume clothes, but his face must be visible and he must trick-or-treat with his parents before dark. When she told me this, I didn't need to ask why she had this rule for her son. I already knew. But you might not, so I'll tell you. If they can see his face, his big, bright smile, his eyes that glimmer when he says trick-or-treat, they might see that he is a child, full of light and life and love. If they can look into his eyes and see the humanity of his childhood, they might be less apt to judge him, to degrade him, to kill him. These are the thoughts that many moms of color hold deep in the recesses of their mind come Halloween. These thoughts run parallel to their memories of Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Jordan Davis, all of the children being held in detention centers. On Halloween, black and brown parents cannot stress enough the importance of being home before dark. For many of us, every phone call we get from an unrecognized phone number becomes a momentary jaunt through catastrophic events, whether it's Halloween or not. Halloween, something that yes, I indulge in with my own child and I recognize the privilege I have in doing so, is fun and also problematic in how it subliminally positions society's haves and have-nots against each other. Yet we're all so swept up in the hoopla of that cute toddler dressed as a chicken waddling up the driveway, or the elaborate Christmas tree costume that actually lights up and plays carols, that we don't even notice. Sadly, I don't have a tangible solution to level the playing field. All I can ask, is that we are all a little bit more aware as we trick-or-treat this year and in years to come. Challenge your own biases. Question your beliefs about others. Even if you don't think you have beliefs, maybe invite a family that doesn't look like yours to come and join in the Halloween fun with you. Will it level the playing field? No, but it will put new players on the field. Those who have been forced to sit on the sidelines because the game was rigged. And that little teeny tiny action could be one of the things that begins to change the game. Happy Halloween, folks. You can find more of Adiba Nelson on her website, The Full Nelson. The music was by Matea. And don't be afraid to tune in next week for the 12th annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.